Well, the story that we have all been captivated by for days now is this missing submersible on an expedition to go view the wreckage of the Titanic. It went missing off the coast of Newfoundland. And as we all know, the time is really ticking to rescue the five people that are on board. Now, the latest is that uh, Canada military aircraft was able to detect some noises, sounded, sounded sort of like banging noises. We're not sure if that's going to get us any closer to locating exactly where the submersible is, but... But the world has been watching and uh, we're all captivated by what will hopefully result in, in a rescue and an explanation on what has gone on. In the meantime, we can really just sort of speculate and keep talking about how wild this story is, how it's just been unfolding in front of our eyes as we're all just curious for answers. We're going to hopefully get some clarification on what are submersibles and what could potentially have gone wrong here. How do they communicate? There are a lot of questions around how these things even operate operate. Our guest is here to answer some of those questions. He's a professor at the Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney, Australia. Dr. Stephen B. Williams is joining the show. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for making the time. I'm sorry, Chelsea, I was on mute. I think after three years of COVID, one would one would know to check that, but uh, pleasure to be here this morning. You know what? I think after three years of COVID, we have all been there and can heavily relate to that. So it is, <laughs> it is all right. I appreciate you joining me from across the world and making the time to talk about this. And I think the, the fact that you're in Australia really just, it lends to the fascination of this story. I mean, this is really, a, it's a global pursuit and has captivated people worldwide. Why do you think we are so taken with this story? Oh, I think we all kind of are, are fascinated with the, the sort of advances that have been made with this sort of technology, the, the prospect of going down to, to investigate, you know, the, the Titanic wreck and other, other things like that. I think, that, you know, people are, are fascinated with, with these things. And, and in this particular case, there's, you know, the, the, the potential outcomes um, of, you know, these these people being lost uh, when going down there, I think uh, it touches a nerve and, and people are really all still hoping for the best, I guess. Yeah, and I think you, wanting to answer so many questions, and there are a lot of them, hoping to get a little mm-hmm. bit of clarification here because, you know, on the, on the first... First note, the difference between submarines and submersibles. I think this is kind of the first time that we've really been talking about, at least globally, submersibles. Maybe we're more familiar with submarines. What's the difference? So a submarine is typically um, a vessel that's operated by Navy. There are some civilian applications for uh, submarines, but um, a submarine is, is typically used for intelligence gathering and, and you know, as part of naval exercises. Um, they're designed to leave a port under their own power and spend you know, extended periods of time in the water, um, but aren't designed for deep dives or for doing a lot of scientific research. So most submarines um, have a depth capability of a few hundred meters. I think sort of the, the deepest diving submarines can go to about 600 meters. Submersibles, on the other hand, um, are um, designed to be launched from a support vessel and are typically designed for deep water operations. So they they would be deployed and, and might spend, you know, a dive, do a dive profile that would be measured in, in a matter of hours, you know, potentially a day or two, but, but are really designed to be cycled up and down through the water column and to let us access some of the deepest parts of the ocean. So the idea with this one, um, would it have been to go down, see the wreck, and then to come back up 
daily. We know that this excursion was supposed to be for seven nights. And, you know, the conversation yeah. about how much that cost has been a big part of this. But would the idea have been to go down and then come back up nightly to that support vessel? Yeah. So my understanding is that the dive profiles they were proposing to run were sort of eight to ten hours. So they would spend two hours descending, um, getting down to 3,800 meters, so something like 1,200, uh, 12,000 feet. Um, it would take about two hours to get to the bottom. They would spend maybe four to six hours having a look around, um, using both the, the viewport that's on the submersible to, to have a look, and, and also some of the onboard cameras and other systems um, to, you know, to um, investigate the, the state of the wreck, and then they would spend another two hours getting back to the surface. My understanding is that the, the sub lost contact about an hour and 45 minutes into that in, uh, the initial dive, um, so it would have been near the seafloor at that point, so, you know, in excess of uh, 3,500 meters so under um, water. I know that you know some of our listeners um, were asking questions like, could it be possible that the crew doesn't realize that they are lost, and what you know what would be the time length that they were meant to have done this excursion? So uh, it looks like they probably would have realized right away um, that communication. We're had well lost. and truly beyond. Yeah, yeah, we're well and truly beyond that period. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are, you know, I have, I have read reports that there have been uh, issues in the past with the communication system of this particular submersible, and it, it's not unusual that you might have some issues. There are, there are um, features of the water column that might make communication difficult, or, you know, it's, it is quite a long range for these acoustic communication systems. So the ship's crew would have uh, realized pretty quickly, and, and these communication systems are designed to allow the ship to track the submersible, but also they, they piggyback little um, text messages effectively on the back of the acoustic signals so that they can talk back and forth. And if the crew was not seeing those messages come down, they would, they would be aware that something uh, was amiss. However, you know, best case scenario, even if the communications system failed, they would have then either completed the dive or um, made an ascent and, and be on the surface. Now, if they had made it to the surface, one would expect that it, they'd have some independent um, means of communicating with the ship by radio or a satellite tracking beacon. Those are relatively cheap and are often used as, as sort of a, a backup safety feature on these sorts of vehicles, whether they're crewed or, or uncrewed. Um, so the, and, and with the number of aircraft and, and ships in the area, one would expect that by now, if it was on the surface, they would, they would likely have found it. Some great clarification on a story that I know that we are all absolutely captivated by. I do have a couple more questions for you, Dr. Williams, but we have to take a very short yeah. break. So we're going to be really quick and come right back into this conversation talking about the missing Titanic submersible. Our guest is a professor for Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney, Australia, Dr. Stephen B. Williams. We'll be right back to answer more in three minutes. We're talking about the missing and Titanic sub that, of course, we've all been talking about. Our guest is a professor at the Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney, Dr. Stephen B. Williams. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for sticking around on hold. Really appreciate your time today. Yeah, that's all right.
I, there's a question coming in on our text line as we're having this conversation, and I think it's an interesting one. Ryan frames it by saying, this might be a stupid question, but I'll take a GPS transponder with me when I head out on my dirt bike into the woods. Is there no GPS locator on this submersible that they can't just track down? And I think it raises an interesting point. How are we not tracking this thing? So the problem is that uh, the frequencies at which GPS operate don't penetrate through the water. So you might get a, a, a signal, you know, a few centimeters underwater, but uh, this sub- submarine's mm-hmm. at, at nearly four kilometers underwater. So the GPS signals themselves don't penetrate that that deep. Um, we do use uh, acoustic systems for positioning. So. The support vessel um, that was deploying the submarine submarine has something called a transceiver that would either be mounted on the hull or or put on a pole over the side. And that uh, emits a little acoustic pulse. And then on the submersible, there's a a little transponder, a bit like a a GPS receiver that listens for that pulse um, Mm. and responds and says, you know, here I am. And by measuring the time difference between the signals being sent and received, you can estimate the range. You can also uh, configure the microphone so you can get bearing observations, which tells you where the submersible is relative to the ship. Um, so that's the device that they were using to track the submersible while it was underway. And as I said before, that's that's how they also communicate with the sub. So those little chirps of information uh, or chirps um, that are being emitted can also have some data piggybacked on them. Uh, now that communication system failed. So best case scenario, it's just the communication that's failed. You know, slightly worse is that the whole vehicle's electronic systems have failed. Um, and uh, and then you know, then the, the, the real worst case scenario is that there's been a catastrophic failure of the submarine, which has essentially taken out all of its systems. Yeah, I mean, um, we know... There have been reports about this banging, and, you know, they have heard some noises on... We're using sonar boys, mm-hmm. so these are hydrophones that are dropped into the water to listen to the acoustic environment. Um, so far, my understanding is that that those searches have, have been negative. They're now analyzing that data to see if it could be, you know, people banging on the inside of the the, um, the pressure vessel to let people know that they're still alive. But but so far, they haven't been able to find any sign of the, the missing submersible. So we know communication was obviously lost, but in terms of exactly what happened, we're still speculating at this point. From the way that I understand it, Dr. Williams, this, this um, watercraft is battery operated. So would there not have been any sort of backup power? Um, there might be, and normally what would happen is you'd have battery backup for critical um, systems. So potentially that tracking device, um, we use these on our robotic uh, systems. So we have underwater vehicles that are not crewed, um, and we have similar tracking communication systems, and those are battery backed up. So they've got a separate independent battery to the main uh, vehicle power. So if our our vehicle runs out of batteries or has some other glitch with its power systems, um, the communications, the tracking system will continue to operate. Um, There may also be separate acoustic beacons, which are completely independently powered. Um, But at the depths at which we're operating, those are... um, you know, they may not have the range, so, so they do need to get in close to have a, have a look. And 
you know, I'm not sure of the details of what additional systems are on board this particular vehicle. You've written an article about this, and in that article, you mentioned that there could be a few different possibilities. Um, there could be a failure to this uh, to this watercraft's pressure housing. You talk about the fact that there could have even been a fire on board. What are some other theories that could have taken place here? Um, I mean, those are the two, uh, you know, worst case scenarios. I think if um, if the the pressure vessel has failed for whatever reason, and I've read some reports that uh, concerns were raised by a board member of the company um, about the the possible possibility of damage to the pressure vessel at you know 3,500 or 3,800 meters underwater, um, the pressure around that pressure vessel is about 380 times atmospheric pressure. So that's an enormous amount of pressure pushing in on this pressure vessel. It will have been designed to withstand that sort of pressure, but if there's any sort of um, fault in the manufacturing, this particular pressure vessel is made of different materials. So it's a, uh, a composite of, of titanium with a carbon fiber tube, and it's got a little viewport that you can look out. All of these materials will react slightly differently um, as pressure increases. And you have to be really careful with the design of those sorts of systems that you don't get some sort of incompatibility in the way that those materials compress. Um, and as the, the sub cycles, so doing do repeated dives, you may find that that cycling of the pressure may exacerbate any kind of problem. And if there was a failure, it could potentially be catastrophic and, and essentially the, the pressure vessel would implode and obviously a terrible consequence for those on, on board. It, it seems that maybe the technology is just not um, advanced enough or maybe there are just not enough safeguards built into these submersibles, things like um, a beacon system, for example, or any way to communicate if there were any sort of power outage. Is it just that these aren't necessarily designed with failure in mind? I mean, these submersibles have been in use since the 1970s. So, you know, we have a long history of deploying these sorts of vehicles. And, you know, they have really led to, to some incredible insights into what's happening in our oceans. Increasingly, though, we're seeing things transition to more robotic systems and we're able to really, you know, keep the people on the surface and do a lot of the, the scientific investigation with robotic platforms. Um, so there is a long history of knowledge of how to how to build and deploy these things. I think we're seeing people using innovative materials and technologies to actually build these vehicles in a in a you know move to make them a bit lighter weight, easier to deploy. So the use of carbon fiber would be um, both a, a strength consideration, but also um, potentially would save on weight. Um, so we do know how to do these things. I don't know the details of this particular um, vehicle, and it's you know been designed predominantly to service this emerging sort of deep sea uh, tourism market. You know, you'd hope they weren't cutting any corners in terms of including um, uh, you know the tracking and communication systems and 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 those sorts of devices that would allow them to find the vehicle in a circumstance where where the, the vehicle came into distress. Dr. Williams, just one last quick question from me on this. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the conditions for the crew. Uh, I think, you know, we don't want to get too morbid here, but what might they be mm. um, seeing and experiencing in such a small space? So uh, yeah, assuming that they're still alive and, and that potentially the vehicle's on the bottom, um, 
you know, it's most likely that their power systems would be out, so they'd be in the dark. Um, it would be cold, so somewhere between zero and four degrees. Uh, you know, the deepest parts of the ocean are pretty uniformly very cold, so they would be, um, you know, after three or four days at that kind of temperatures, you have the risk of suffering hypothermia. Um, you'd be getting um, hungry. They wouldn't have had a lot of um, food on board as they weren't expecting to be underwater for more than a, a few hours. And and I guess, you know, they, there are many, uh, a few of them from reports are, are experienced um, on these sorts of submersibles. So, if the, if the reports about you know noises, um, banging noises, they, you know they they would be attempting to communicate and, and let people know that they're down there. Um, but yeah, I imagine it's a, a pretty frightening experience. Well, and we, will... we can all only just hope for the best, I guess. Yeah, and that's all that we can do is hope for the best possible outcome and uh, just continue to be fascinated by it in the meantime. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for clarifying so much about this. I really appreciate your time. That's all right. Chelsea, thanks very much. Of course. Take care. That's Dr. Stephan B. Williams, professor at the Australian Centre for Field Robotics at the University of Sydney, of course, talking about the missing Titanic sub, Titan.